0: I probably would have had that idea on my own and not done anything with it, you know? But we talked about it together, they turned around and built a prototype, and then it it was on.
1: Hello there, and welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. As ever, you're in for a few minutes of audio delight with your host, me, George Breer, and my fellow esteemed colleague, Mr. Tom Bassam. This week, we're going international. Uh, Tom, how are you?
2: Yeah, I'm very well, George. Um, where are you dialing in
1: from? I know you're absolutely bursting <laughs> to tell us. I thought the international tidbit would get you going, but yes, I'm dialing in from Singapore as we prepare in earnest for tomorrow's uh, Sportsrow APAC uh, conference, where we'll be looking at the future of sport in Asia. So, I'm dialing in from the Marina Bay Sands Hotel in Singapore uh, in preparation. So, very wow, exciting for some, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, mate.
2: Well yeah, as you're as you're in Singapore, why don't you uh, give us a little run through of uh, what you're looking forward to seeing over the next few days. Um yeah, Sports Pro APAC always an interesting event, like a a some some like a bit of a sort of I mean it's so varied that that area of the world, but there's a lot to lot to talk about, I guess. Yeah,
1: for sure. One of the interesting things for me, of course, is having not been at Sports Pro when the last um Pro APAC conference was held. So I think it's been a four year hiatus now since we were back. So from what I'm hearing, there's a lot of excitement for us to return. And there's definitely lots of developments, of course, that have happened since we were last there. So I'm definitely interested to hear how the industry shifted in the in the previous four years and in particular the impact on COVID. Just anecdotally, the response to COVID is obviously very different um, to what we see in, in Europe and the US typically. Uh, so it would be interesting to see what the impact of that is on sport and as Asia's still in that sort of hybrid market, really, between being fully back to things and still being restricted in some way. So that would be interesting. In terms of the sessions, obviously, I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting down with Katie Sadler and the CEO of the Commonwealth Games to review Birmingham. And I know from seeing some tidbits from what's being shared, um, there are some interesting and cool plans for the future, Obviously, I'm going to be delving into the IPL rights myself. So hearing from Sanjay Gupta from Star India will be a really interesting session, particularly given how their rights market will have shifted dramatically with the IPL um, not going their way in the broadcast format. And uh, finally, I know we're kicking off tomorrow with Sun Huang, who's the CEO of Endeavour China. So really excited to lift the lid, really, on the Chinese broadcast market. A new learning era for me.
2: Yeah, that's definitely an exciting one. China's such an interesting market at the moment, uh, given its kind of half in, as you said, half in, kind of half out outlook. And yeah, Endeavour being such a sort of new, newish player, really, in that space. So yeah, excited to see those sessions when we uh, get the old bean back chance here in the UK.
1: You're not going to be setting your 3 a.m. alarm, Tom, to, to dial into the sessions.
2: Um, as much as I love watching sports pro events, I, uh, I, I don't think I can quite excuse myself the time to, to, to do that.
1: You need your beauty sleeps for the uh, social clets.
2: Yeah, you. Can, yeah, so everyone can't tell, um, if they think I look bad now. Wait, wait till you see me
1: at three a.m. Yeah. Uh, well, um, before before we 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 kick off um, with our special interview this week, which uh, we're delighted to welcome Eric Stark, who is the co-founder and president at Slate. We'll be speaking to him um, a little bit later on, but should we quickly have a look at some of the news stories during the rounds this week, Tom?
2: Yeah, let's go for it.
1: Great. Well, first and foremost, I think we should probably start with Saudi Arabia's bid or reported joint bid for the 2030 Football World Cup, as has been reported in the Times, looking to partner with Egypt and Greece for a sort of multi-continental winter tournament format. Did you see that report, Tom?
2: I did. I did. Really good read. There's a lot of kind of interesting tidbits in it. It's a Martin Ziegler, story, great journalist. And it's a fascinating proposal, really, when you think about it. So that's three continents, three countries, three football confederations, which obviously is crucial in these kind of situations. Uh, it seems to have been like rumbling away for a little bit of time. There's a few reports knocking around various bits of the regional presses in each of the countries about meetings that have been held between the FAs leading up to this. But yeah, I mean, so essentially the story is that Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Greece are going to jointly bid for the World Cup. This would be a World Cup, again, that's played in the European winter. So there's that kind of issue to contend with. And also the kind of crucial part that I found most interesting about this was Gianni Infantino, FIFA president, is said to be a big supporter of the bid. Not particularly because of the Saudi Arabian influence, although I'm sure that's probably a part of it, but mostly because he wants to be the FIFA president that takes another World Cup back to Africa. I, mean, if, I don't know if anyone remembers that was a big big play for his predecessor, Sepp Blatter, taking the World Cup to South Africa. Um, but Gianni Infantino apparently is very keen to, um, to take the tournament um, back to that continent. Uh, he's obviously done a lot of work there recently with the uh, African Super League, which we've previously discussed on, on this podcast. And for him, I think this would be a kind of a, a legacy-establishing legacy tournament Uh, I mean, uh, it couldn't really be much more controversial, I think, given the the sort of lead country in it, Saudi Arabia. Um, They're said to be wanting to kind of, well, wanting to or offering to pay for the other infrastructure projects uh, in Greece and Egypt that would be needed to support the tournament. So that'd be Stadia, I imagine, probably some some transport stuffs too. Uh, It continues their sort of 2030 vision, sport washing kind of agenda, doesn't it
1: really? Yeah, as you say, it's a very ambitious bid looking across those three continents. And again, looking at another winter tournament, um, I'm sure Qatar's effort at that this winter will be an interesting blueprint for them to go for and and probably want to learn from. But they do seem to be trying to, as you say, sort of tick off the support boxes, right? Looking at that African infrastructure um, and bringing football back into The African remit, again, is is a key project of Infantino's. It's unsurprising to see there was some pretty vocal disapproval from Alexander Seferin, who understandably put his weight well and truly behind Spain and Portugal's rival bid. And there's also, I know, one from South America as well. But uh, this one sort of transcending three different continents, I think probably looks to... It's probably Saudi Arabia's easiest way in, right, is gathering support from as many corners as possible with as many competing agendas as possible as you say with the the overarching goal of their entry into these big sporting tournaments yeah
2: I definitely don't think Saudi Arabia could host this alone do
1: you think that's more from an infrastructural point of view or from a support and I guess political point of view is probably the best way of putting it right in terms of gathering the the requisite votes etc and the requisite support in which to push this through or maybe both.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, the yeah, I mean, you've got here by bringing together those three different confederations, and um, you're going to be able to bring in votes from all of them. Um, although, I'm guessing the the UEFA vote will probably largely fall behind Spain and Portugal. In some ways, you could see this as a slightly odd political move for Greece, but given the sort of the geographical closeness with those with the, with the two other bidding countries, then maybe it's less of a surprise. Uh, but yeah I, I certainly think by getting CAF on side the African Confederation that's a really big play here um, it's obviously a, a very big confederation one very much under the kind of control of FIFA at the moment so uh, for Saudi Arabia it's a, it, it could be a, a geopolitical um, football politics masterstroke I still don't necessarily think it will win I think there's probably going to be enough opposition from elsewhere but stranger things have happened we are going to be coming off back to back World Cups in Russia and Qatar. So I don't necessarily think FIFA needs this, but it might well get it.
1: And so you don't see it succeeding, right? Uh,
2: I, I'd like to think it doesn't happen. Um, I, I don't think that I don't think countries with records such as Saudi Arabia when it comes to human rights should be awarded major tournaments, especially when they'll essentially be just purchasing them um, by paying for things in other countries. But uh, with FIFA, you can never really rule anything out. They don't. They don't seem to really take much sway of public opinion or decency. So, um, yeah, it remains to be seen. I, I still think that UEFA Portugal is the favourite, but what goes on in those murky rooms in
1: Switzerland is um, open <laughs> open for debate. Yeah, beyond anyone's best guess. Well, as I said, obviously stress that those are just reports. Um, right, nothing formally announced. So we'll we'll make sure we keep an eye on that. Um, and obviously, it comes back off the our discussion of that Olympic um, potential bid as well. So uh, maybe we, uh, we should stop predicting uh, the future, Tom, in the way that we have done with Kazoo. You you turned Nostradamus a few weeks ago as uh, <laughs> you uh, as we discussed their business realignment plan, and um, you were pretty confident that it would result in a few European sponsorship deals being up for grabs or newly up for grabs as Kazoo pulled out. Well, it looks like. Uh, the Writings on the wall there,
2: yeah. More than on the wall, I think. They're, the company confirmed to, to uh, sports pros Ed Dixon the other day that they would certainly be looking to curtail those um, those deals in Europe as they basically pull out of the whole market. It's a, some, it's a, uh, I'm sure it's a, probably a much bigger story in the automotive industry than it is in the sports industry, but this is a big, big brand who's made a really big play of pushing itself. Just outside of its UK home and across the continent, bought up a load of different, similar car companies or sort of similar second-hand car buying brands to support this push, and is now is now sort of seeing the writing on the wall, seeing it's not quite working out in the way it wanted it to, and pulling out, and that has implications for our dear sports industry and those clubs that have been. Part of this big marketing drive that Casu's been on in the last eighteen months or so, so that's clubs in yes, they've got one in all the major markets, so at least one in all the major markets. So Marseille by Leverkusen, um, I think Real Sociedad, there's definitely one in Italy as well. Bologna, that's the one. I imagine those those deals will be wrapped up at the end of the season, and those clubs will be having to look for other partners. It's uh, it's a shame. It's not entirely unpredictable, and. Uh, a time of great uncertainty, I think, in the in the sports sponsorship sector. Uh, probably not what was needed.
1: No, you say that. Of course, there'll be lots of English clubs and, and British sports properties that will be on quite high alert as a result of this announcement. Just off the top of my head, there's a vast number of properties, let alone teams, um, involved with kazoo in some description. Of course, the 100 being have, have placed big bets behind kazoo or with kazoo. Um, of course, darts, horse racing, snooker, rugby, um, football uh, I can think of three or four Premier League uh, at least two Premier League clubs that have kazoo shirt sponsorship deals do you see this being isolated to mainland Europe or do you think it's going to cross the channel and there are some precarious deals um, in the making careful here Tom because we do know what you say does turn into reality and <laughs> <laughs> um, I because
2: uh, it was indicated for now that it's going to be um, keeping hold of those those deals in the UK. I think it's going to be, I think the, the UK is going to be the area where it consolidates its business. I don't think we're going to see perhaps any new ones being done. But I imagine that given that it's, it wants to make a success of this market, uh, it will probably stick around with those for a while. Maybe it, may, it, may, it might sort of move away from maybe some of the more precarious or... Slightly shorter deals. Maybe renewals will probably be something that's not quite on the agenda. Um, indications are for now. I think the UK is relatively safe, but as we've as we've seen, um, yeah, it, it can be. It's a volatile time. I think
1: for pretty much everyone
2: and um, and
1: industry very much included in that do you think this is indicative of a greater responsibility that needs to be taken with sports clubs and properties exploring the due diligence of sponsorship deals to a far greater extent understanding you know, it's difficult, right? Balancing emerging challenger brands and businesses um, that have greater marketing budgets behind them as they look to establish their reach and, and portfolio in the UK, with the safety that comes with an established brand and an established business, um, but potentially a lower paycheck.
2: I, I, I mean, I think with I think with the individual case of Kazoo, the turn, this turnaround happened quite quickly, but the withdrawal, I guess, from the from the sector could have been predicted a couple of months ago. So. There are there definitely deals done this summer where you'd look at, where you'd probably have to question some of the teams and be like, okay, does this, is this really, do you really think this is going to be reach the multi-year uh, length of contracts that you've discussed? Kazoo's been struggling for growth. I think the sort of first kind of inclinations we got this with the back end of last year, but that said, it was still doing deals. And we we had Mike Mainwaring at the at Sports Pro Live earlier this year, talking about Kazoo sponsorship strategy and companies aren't doing that if they don't think they're going to be striking sports sponsorships. So I think this is something that is probably the decision to turn around has happened quite quickly. Maybe it could have been predicted, but then some of those sports clubs, especially in Spain and Italy, where gambling brands are no longer permitted to to strike deals, there's, there's definitely a sort of a shortage of sponsors, I think at the moment, especially at the top end of elite sports so it's not surprising, I think, that those deals were struck. I think maybe the, 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 rap, the rapid pace at which they've collapsed is uh, less surprising, too, given the, the sort of market circumstances that have led to it. I, I think it's just the nature of the industry, really, at the moment, isn't it? Like There, there, there isn't a lot of certainty around. There's not many sectors which are safe. Um, this one looked like it was, but apparently
1: that's no longer the case. Certainly one to keep an eye on. Maybe central. Will take up that advertising space and, and consolidate its position in that in that battle between secondhand car companies. Anyway, Tom, I think it's time we we move on to from news to a bit of sports tech. And earlier this week, I sat down with Eric Stark, as I said, who's president and co-founder of Slate, and it's a very wide-ranging discussion. Actually, um, looking at how Slate was started and its early days pivoting from um, its B2C origins um, to where it is now. Also, we had a a quick look at what the sports tech funding journey looks like um, within the industry and in particular how it can be uh, improved and evolved. And finally, looking at some plans for the business moving forwards, and uh, some interesting work that they're doing across American sports in particular. Um, So let's welcome (laughs) Eric. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Stark, who is the president and co-founder of Slate. Now, for those that don't know, Slate is a creation platform that allows you to produce quality and branded social media content across every social media channel. Now, Eric's had a a rich career across teams and the organization itself within the NFL, so I'm delighted to welcome him onto the pod. Before we delve into the, the product and what it does, I wanted to understand... How did it come about, right? how How did uh, how did Slate come into existence?
0: We kind of had a few things that lined up at once to to give birth to Slate, if you will. I was working for the NFL um, for many years, and my co-founder Michael, him and I met at the San Francisco 49ers back in 2013. He was a video producer at the time. I was a social media manager there. We kind of went on different paths after that. He got into the startup world, started working in UX, UI, building products. I went to the NFL league office, kept kind of growing my career in sports. And, you know, we always stayed in touch and we would always talk about different ideas and always have kind of ideas and aspirations to to build something. And he kind of went off and did it. And I was just talking about it, but still working, uh, still working for a cushy sports league. Uh, but you know, he created a tool that basically became the precursor to Slate with uh, two other co-founders. One of uh, one of them's name is Will Brook, who is um, our COO now. And you know, they built a B two C tool. It was it was different than what Slate is now. Uh, But in some conversations with me and with potential clients of that tool, we realized there was an opportunity to really take what they had and pivot it to something that would be a huge need amongst really the type of job I was doing at the time. Um, So we started talking about it. We got really excited because they already had infrastructure in place from this other startup. They basically were able to take those resources and put them towards building a prototype of Slate. You know, once I saw it and started using it and, um, you know, realize kind of that vision pretty quickly of, hey, this product could be something that's super easy to use, yet super powerful, even in its kind of first MVP kind of iterations. It was pretty clear then that, yeah, I needed to, to quit my job at the NFL and start <laughs> start working on this journey with those guys. So that's kind of how it came to be. You know, once we had a prototype, we started pitching it to different NFL teams because obviously that's where our network was. And, and the feedback we got was overwhelmingly positive. Um, and we realized this was something that, you know, uh, businesses would pay for.
1: That pivot that you mentioned from the original B2C product to, to where Slate exists today, right, which isn't that that more B2B angle, can you take us back to those original conversations and, and what were the challenges that you thought the platform wasn't quite fulfilling in its current form and that forced the pivot?
0: Yeah, I mean, we can call it like a pivot. In some ways, it is a totally separate company and separate product. But really kind of the infrastructure that was laid by uh, Michael and Will before me uh, helped us create an MVP really quickly, right? So, you know, that product was a texting-based app where you can kind of text, um, you know, uh, your friends in brand fonts. So imagine texting in like the Game of Thrones font. Um, you know, kind of like a bit moji sort of thing. And Michael and I were always kind of talking about ideas. He was asking me advice on kind of their product, you know, would NFL teams put their fonts in a tool like this kind of, and I would just always be chatting with him about different things kind of related to that. Right. But, you know, I was never going to kind of leave my NFL job for um, kind of what they were doing at that time. And, Um, Through a conversation that was had with uh, a brand, you know, a brand was like, hey, we don't want to be able to text in our own fonts, but we'd love to type over, you know, a a video in our own fonts, like in Instagram stories. And, And Michael and I were talking about that. And all of a sudden, like when I heard that, I got really excited because knowing the pain points of creating social media content, especially in kind of this new environment with everything being so native and happening in app, you know, we then we started talking like, what if we had a creation tool that you could type in your brand fonts, you could add your brand overlays and stickers, basically like Instagram stories like TikTok, but totally custom to your brand, uh, and that you could control that branding from the back end and switch it out at any time. And really, that's like where the idea for Slate came from. And we got super excited about that and started doing research started kind of seeing if it existed and realizing it didn't definitely not in the b2b capacity and the enterprise capacity that we had in mind and you know they were kind of at the end of the road i guess with the the other part of the project of like okay you know this b2c thing they took a big risk and were actually quit their jobs to start this company from scratch right and it had been a year or so. Yeah, really kind of that risk that they took and like foundation there then led to, to Slate, right? Cause then they were able to say, look, let's just take our resources and build this. Cause this is a good idea. We're excited about it. I was kind of a proof of concept having, being working in the industry at the time and saying, look, this is something that could do really well as a B2B SaaS company. And, you know, a tool that I think is really needed not just in sports, but amongst all brands. And I probably would have had that idea on my own and not done anything with it, you know? But we talked about it together. They turned around and built a prototype and then it, it was on from there, basically.
1: So it almost sounds as if you operated a an interestingly dual role of co-founder, but first adopter or early adopter and um, probably allows that right to give you a unique insight into its utility and its actual value to... The end user. When you started taking that out into market with other sports teams, and I'm, I'm assuming it probably started with the NFL, given your own contacts, was the reception similar? Did you find those challenges existed across other franchises?
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We realized really quickly that, um like, we had overwhelmingly positive feedback as soon as we kind of brought it to teams into market, you know, and. We had a lot of deep connections within, obviously, the NFL, but other sports as well. You know, we were able to kind of sign on, I think, about 10 to 15 NFL teams within a month. And this was just with kind of the prototype of a tool that, you know, was not nearly as robust as it is today. Um, And and we started quickly getting other customers um, outside of the NFL and, and starting to outside of sports as well. So... Yeah, uh, we got really positive feedback really early on, and it was very clear to us that we were solving a pain point that needed to be solved, and uh, that there was a lot of opportunity there for us to to build something.
1: And we've talked a bit about those pain points. So, assume a simple question, but how how does the product actually work? Can you take us through... Slate and, and what it does and, the, and that, the challenges that it does solve.
0: Yeah, totally. So it's it Slate's a content or a cloud-based content creation platform. It basically enables brands and businesses to extend their brand guidelines across kind of every creator touch point. Um, so what you're able to do is upload your brand assets and control all of your brand creative through a dedicated portal and then activate that through a very easy to use content creation app that is in a way kind of white label or custom to your brand. So this content creation experience really emulates, again, how native social content is created. So typing in fonts, swiping over filters, searching stickers, but all of that creative is kind of custom pre-approved by your brand. Then anyone who is now creating on behalf of that, your brand is able to do so in a way that's super quick and easy looks really native and authentic to social media, but also is true to kind of the brand through line and brand standard. So it not only helps kind of keep social media teams nimble, helps them do more with less resources, which, you know, you'd be surprised at how few resources, even the biggest brands in the world have (laughs) for creating a really high volume of social media content. Helps maintain brand consistency across platforms where brand consistency is really breaking down, right? Like you could follow your favorite brands on social and realize they're using the same font on Instagram that you or I would use while they're investing millions into their brand and trying to reinforce and maintain that brand. You know, and also it, it helps, uh, especially in sports, teams really monetize their highest performing social media assets, right? This real-time content, this short-form content, this vertical content, content that's super cheap to produce, which is great because the overhead is not a ton and there's a high volume of it. And now you can start to monetize it in a way that is engaging, in a way that doesn't slow down your content team's workflows It's a win-win for sponsors and for fans and content creators. So really solving kind of those multiple challenges in sports. And that's really where we've found a ton of success.
1: I wanted to touch on the monetization piece in a moment, but before we did, what I what I think is really interesting in terms of the slate journey, right? Is you're talking about those 2012, 2013 early days, early discussions. There's probably a few platforms that you need to be worrying about at that time. It was the Facebooks, the Twitters, potentially early stage Instagrams. Whereas now it's a litany of platforms, but also of surfaces, right? So whereas Instagram may be known for its stories, that's across the board and the rise of TikTok, et cetera. How important has that platform become now where, as you say, teams are sometimes under resourced and need to be agile, but need to produce a vast quantity of content across an exponentially increasing number of channels and platforms?
0: You know, a few years ago, Reels and TikTok weren't a priority. Some didn't exist. (laughs) If they did exist, it wasn't something that your content teams had to create content for every single day. All of a sudden, you know, those are added to the plate of social media teams, right? You need to be active on on TikTok. You need to be active on Reels. But, But something else hasn't fallen off in the meantime. You know, there's still Snapchat. Believe it or not, they're still posting to Facebook and actually still provides <laughs> big numbers for a lot of brands. Um, Twitter, you know, Stories hasn't kind of gone away and been replaced by um, these other video platforms. It's it's all being added to it, um, and you know, you're not hiring a new staff member every time this happens, right? So just a new thing gets added to kind of your social media team's plate, and you know, kind of the volume of content that it takes to, especially in the sports world, to kind of um, stay on top of the trends and also keep fans engaged is pretty overwhelming. Uh, And really what Slate does is it helps kind of creators stay on top of that and it helps them be nimble and agile and create content that's optimized for every platform, right? Because each platform requires a different sort of content as well. And so often creators have to learn a little bit of Adobe Premiere or figure out some stuff in Photoshop. And that's great, like to to have those skills. But these are tools that are made for, you know, editing feature length films and designing, you know, billboards and anything else. You know, we built a tool that's just for how social media content gets created, right? Not trying to kind of repurpose an old tool and create social content through it. Um, And that's really why it's so quick and easy to create content in Slate for all these different platforms. And really, you know, social media teams and sports say it's like having another person on their staff because of of how effective it is and helping them manage like you said, this kind of overwhelming um, amount of content across an ever-growing list of, of platforms.
1: To touch on that, social media is often seen as a tool principally for audience development, right? Increasing reach, getting new eyeballs, and then allowing you to spread your content to, to new fans and potentially new types of fan as well. But the monetization opportunities are undoubted there as well. And by being agile, being nimble, you offer added inventory and more valuable inventory was that part of the slate journey from the get-go or has that something that's evolved more organically as the products developed
0: yeah i mean i think it's something that you know like we didn't set out to build a tool for sponsorship right um like hey, this is a tool that can be used to monetize assets, but it, it was pretty quickly evident that not only could Slate help content creators streamline their workflow, but also this could increase the monetization opportunities across these platforms. And it's something we leaned into pretty early on.
1: And have you seen a change in the profile of commercial partners that the opportunities bring, particularly with the added pace, et cetera, the rise of um, betting and gambling in US sports in particular?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, there's been kind of an evolution in a few things. I think when I was working for the 49ers, social media was always just an add-on to bigger sponsorship packages, right? Um, It was thrown in there. It wasn't even priced separately or sold separately. So there really wasn't a ton of value put against just social media, um, let alone things like specifically Instagram stories or reels or specific platforms or content types. And now, you know, we, we just got off the phone with an NFL team, um, their director of partnership. We had a call with their partnership director and their social media lead, right? And the two are working very closely together, uh, which is something we didn't see as much back then. Um, and it's great to kind of see that synergy and they just sold a multimillion dollar sponsorship package that's focused on social only. And specifically stories is where they're getting consistent views, consistent value to their partners, and that's all being executed through Slate, right? So that's, you know, we're, we're seeing social media get valued properly um, and being sold properly. And yeah, the kind of amount of sponsors that want to be involved in it is it, definitely increasing.
1: I won't ask you to name that multimillion dollar uh, social media sponsorship deal, no matter how much I'd like to. <laughs> but it's a nice segue into um, giving us an insight into the types of organizations that you're seeing using Slate. And if you can, some, some particular use cases where it's worked well for
0: them. Yeah. uh, So I mean, sports is obviously where we started, um, but we're growing in in media and entertainment as well. um, And also amongst kind of general brands, right? Uh, So there's really kind of a few core use cases. One is around a live event where, you know, content really is coming quickly and needs to be turned around at a high velocity in a way that's consistent, right? So you know, with the NFL picking back up, it's top of mind, but, you know, practices, game days, folks are kind of on the field, on the sidelines with the Slate app open, creating content and turning it around in real time. You know, and the content you're seeing across many teams and the league accounts uh, is branded through Slate, right? So that's kind of the core use case we started with. Um, but we've also built tools that is helping Slate and helping our customers, you uh, use the tool more as a day-to-day content creation platform as well. Um, So things like auto captioning uh, your videos, you know, we're building a web-based content creator to, to be more of a replacement for kind of the premiere Photoshop when you want it on a bigger screen, creating YouTube content as well as the short form content. So we're kind of We started more as, I guess, a live events tool and really being used at at sporting events and matches and practices. And now we're becoming kind of an all around content creation tool. So great for your real time moments, great for your live events, but day-to-day also a tool that could just help you maintain your brand and create content that could be posted right then and there or scheduled out later
1: as part of that evolution that you spoke about of course since slate's launched we have seen a a number of other platforms that allow content creators to use branded content how do you see slate as maintaining that competitive advantage and what are the you know what are the future evolution plans to maintain that position
0: yeah good question i think we have the luxury of being kind of a, a first mover advantage in the niche that we're in right so there's there's big kind of content creation platforms, you know, Canva always kind of comes to mind as really the one that we get kind of compared to a lot, but you know, we built slate knowing that Canva wasn't meeting our needs in the roles that we were in. Right. Like the customization and flexibility of slate kind of stands out against, all of our competitors right now, mixed with the super ease of use, right? Which are two things that are kind of hard to bring together, like very enterprise, very customizable, but also really, really easy to use. So the creation part of it almost is like a B2C tool, right? Like any app that you could download and create content, but the customization of the branding is fully enterprise. And that's really what's needed on social because social media content needs to be created quickly in a way that um, is super easy for creators, brand ambassadors, anyone. But the brand directors, the brand managers need to be able to kind of control that creative across touch points and that customization needs to be there. So, yeah, I mean, like anything else, you know, there's no kind of, secret code that's gonna like help us beat the competition that no one else has access to. Uh, But we're listening to our customers, we're building the tools they need. We have a very, very specific vision as to where we want to go. And we do feel like some other tools, you know, that are kind of trying to do similar things are gonna be a step behind because they're kind of looking towards our roadmap and we're not copying anyone else's roadmap. We, We know where we wanna go and we don't see anyone there yet. So we're just going to keep listening to our customers and building the features that um, we know are going to help take their uses to the next level.
1: And in terms of those evolutions and being nimble, how important is it to have that, you know, that clear roadmap identifying where the developments are taking place with a appreciation and a, a laser focus as well on the innovations that are taking place outside of the business. So the platforms, the users and the formats. Um, How is, what's the balance between, you know, staying in your lane, knowing what you need to do internally, but also understanding that the way content is created and consumed is changing rapidly and all the
0: time. And the business needs to be able to adapt to that. Totally. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, we have to stay, we we could have a roadmap that has features that are you know, if we got to everything would take years to build. But in that time, you know, things are going to be changing really quickly, right? Like you said, with the trends and the platforms and how content is consumed. I think you have to obviously always be up to date on that. And a lot of it comes from really like knowing and understanding our customers and listening and hearing kind of what are they anticipating? What are their challenges, right? At the same time, while always trying to be up to date on, what could be coming and what the trends are with creation and the social platforms. I think you do also have to always have kind of like a guiding kind of North Star that you believe no matter like what, you know? And for us, like we believe there will always be a need for brands to create video content, no matter what the platform is in the future or where it goes, right? And you kind of see that from Stories to TikTok and TikTok to Reels and whatever else the next kind of platform may be, you know, short form video content, branded content in a way that is very consumable to audiences we don't feel like it's going away. Now, kind of the packaging may change a little bit, the platforms that are most popular may change a bit, but brands are always going to need to define themselves, you know, in different digital spaces and engaging kind of short form content, you know, we don't believe will ever kind of go away. Um, So those are the things that get us excited about the next five to 10 years and why we have like a vision that kind of goes beyond just Instagram stories, for instance, you know, we think it's, it's a lot bigger than that. And we're used even for content on, you know, some, some brands owned and operated channels because they're trying to bring this sort of content to their mobile apps. Right. So again, it's less about kind of the platforms that we're following and more this, or that we kind of believe in and more about, um, you know, the need for businesses to engage audiences in this way, we don't think is is just kind of a short term fad. Well, yeah, things like stories on Snapchat may kind of come and go and be replaced by a different platform.
1: We've talked a lot about that B2B business case that exists. But I find it intriguing, given the recent rise towards creator-led content, um, particularly from celebrities, but also from the average fan, right? There is a huge rise now and, and a big push towards utilizing fan-led content, um, both from teams themselves and from the overarching leagues. Do you see a future where Slate's opportunities to brand content and to use some of the club-led creatives could be used in a B2C context?
0: I definitely see why that could make sense. Uh, And it's something that uh, I think when folks see Slate, it, it comes up a lot. Like, hey, this could actually be an awesome fan engagement tool, right? It's not something we're focused on right now, to be honest. We have had instances where Slate has been distributed by brands to a group of brand ambassadors or influencers for, hey, when you're at this game or when you're creating content on our behalf, you now have this kind of special um, content creation app that you could use. Um, so that's a way, it's almost like B2B to see in a way. Um, but yeah, we're not really focused on, you know, how can this tool kind of be in the hands of every fan at a stadium, for instance. Although, you know, we, we see kind of why that could be an opportunity. There's just so much opportunity for us and so much work to be done on, you know, how we're serving the marketing and social media teams and, and potentially influencer marketing teams across brands, both in sports, outside of sports, and really the closest kind of we would go, we'd be more focused on going to like smaller businesses and, and their needs for content creation and looking for a Canva alternative, um, which we've heard a lot, then going kind of B to C, if that, um, if that makes sense.
1: Moving on from the from the product now, obviously, SportsPro and Slate have uh, a history that extends back to uh, back many years, but also um, in particular with Ignition, our sports tech focused uh, online event that took place in January this year. And of course, Slate were the winners of our inaugural Sport Innovation Awards alongside the DFL, um, which sort of celebrates the next generation of startups that are changing the world of sports business. We created that. Platform for many reasons, but one of them being the the gap in the market that exists when it comes to sports tech, both in the way it's funded and in the way that it is marketed. I wanted to take you back to those in early days with Slate and some of those funding rounds. How easy did you find it to access those early investment funds, and and how did you go about it?
0: Yeah, good. Good question. I mean, I don't think fundraising is is ever really easy, especially at like a super early stage, right? Where you don't have, you know, a ton of traction. Um, and there's a little bit of traction, there's product, there's an idea. But, you know, maybe fundraising is easy if you've <laughs> built a massive company already and sold it and you have kind of that founder name and recognition. And then, yeah, you already have a network. But, yeah, for us, we had to kind of go about building a network, um, trying to, you know, get as many meetings as possible. And there's just a lot of pitching and a lot of showcasing and a lot of the same questions (laughs) from VCs over and over. Um, And yeah, I definitely wouldn't say it was easy. um, But it's kind of like one... One conversation leads to the next. It's almost like when you're looking for a new job, right? Like you're leveraging your network, you're getting meetings and, you know, you talk to 30, 40, 50 VCs and angel investors, you know, and then you find the one that kind of fits on both sides. And yeah, we found that, you know, it took, it wasn't like it happened in a week. You know, the process is always going to take at least a few months um, in our experience, but we fundraised at the right time and it really helped us, especially through the pandemic. Like we, we raised money right before the pandemic happened and, and we had yet to deploy much of it. So we really weren't super uh, nervous when kind of sports started shutting down. And that was like our core customer base, you know, and it, I guess that wasn't the best way to put it. There's definitely nerves, but it wasn't like this is going to end kind of the company. Right. We were able to withstand some months where things were really, really quiet and then really kind of spark a ton of growth that that summer of 2020 um, and have been growing pr- pretty rapidly ever since.
1: Before I, I go back to that that funding question, I, I wanted to, to, it's an interesting segue into to COVID and how the pandemic impacted your business. Of course, from a financial standpoint, having just raised, it obviously does help things somewhat and cushion the blow but did it impact the operations and the use case for the product?
0: It did, it did. I mean, in some ways it made social media more important than ever, right? Which, which helps kind of a tool like ours. But, you know, at its core we were, especially when we started, like I mentioned, we were a tool that was based around live content creation, right? And most of our use case in sports was in person at a game, at a match and all of that shut down. So our use case really slowed down. We also had, we were transitioning from basically an initial pilot offering to to starting to sell kind of annual deals right around that time. You can imagine it's a very hard time to kind of negotiate with a sports team or league to sign on to anything for a year and kind of re-up. So yeah, we definitely saw kind of a slowdown um, around the first few months there. But once sports started happening again, you know, without fans, you know, a tool like ours became more important than ever because one, there was less resources. They're definitely not going to hire that extra social media manager or, you know, graphic designer at that point. And two, social became the focus of fan engagement, right? Because there wasn't the in-person touch point. Um, And then there's the sponsorship revenue, obviously, to recoup uh, and apply that to social media. So We really saw a slowdown in kind of the spring um, and like early summer of 2020 when everything was shut down. And as soon as kind of like the NBA came back with the bubble, you know, MLS was back, some international games were back. uh, We saw kind of an explosion in use and interest because there was a big focus on social media. But at that stage, we really needed the games and kind of events to be happening for the use case. You know, nowadays, our platform gets used more just for any type of social content and, and day-to-day stuff as well as the events. But, but at that point, we really were a kind of a, a live event sort of a tool.
1: And did that cement internally the strategy to being beyond just those live events, or was that always in the roadmap?
0: It did. It, it did in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think we, our initial hypothesis was like, yes, we're, we're best for kind of real time and live events and, You know, it's better to be kind of an all around tool. But at the same time, a lot of brands are doing experiential content and like live event stuff, not just in sports. And that shut down for a a lot of brands and and didn't come back for other brands as quickly as it did for sports. You know, you think of like brands like Nike's of the world, you know, all the kind of experiential moments and events that they activate at in like a pre-COVID world or, you know, movie studios or anything like that. We still think that kind of the real-time nature of social has application well beyond sports, but it did accelerate our product development to be more of an all-around content creation tool, a desktop tool, you know, things that um, aren't just really as focused on events. And it definitely made that quicker than I think we had initially planned on.
1: Sounds like a happy marriage of circumstance and planning. Yeah. And I wanted to return um, briefly to, to the funding area that we briefly discussed. And a, a quick look at some of the early investors in Slate um, includes the Green Bay Packers and the Will family, who obviously have um, strong ties with the Minnesota Vikings and Orlando City from the MLS. It is fairly frequent in sports to see sports tech receive funding from teams, clubs, and prominent individuals within the space. Did you find it helpful almost having a client base that also could act double up as an investor? And was that because that's where you found that the funding most freely available as opposed to maybe a dearth in venture capital um, opportunities, private equity opportunities or or other investment angles?
0: Yeah, I think definitely at the kind of pre-seed stage where we were when um, we got those investments again, like super, super early. It was easy to get. It was easier to get in front of kind of sports tech funds because our traction was in in sports, right? I think we were already working with both the Packers and the Vikings when we were having those conversations, and a lot, you know, it usually happens the other way around where they'll kind of get pitched by um, a tech company and then go to their teams and say, "Hey, would this be something you would use?" and kind of get that um, that kind of use case proof from their internal groups, but we already had that. So it definitely helped make it kind of easier conversations. And yeah, you know, both have been really amazing partners for us, have helped kind of guide us through a lot of kind of the the questions and challenges we had early on. And obviously the funding itself, like I mentioned, was just a huge help to get through kind of those early days in, in March 2020 and know that we, you know, be able to kind of make it through whatever would come and then be able to, to go from there. So being in sports definitely helps us raise money from sports tech funds easier, I would say, than kind of a broader VC. And, you know, as we've kind of grown and grown more outside of sports, we're, we're getting more interest from um, venture capital that is more broad and, and have some partners that aren't sports specific as, you know, our use case extends more to all types of businesses.
1: It's interesting that you say the move into entertainment and media has prompted greater interest from venture capital. Is that partially a product of growth and just the the level that the business has achieved? Or is that also just a gap in the market in sports, which is that there isn't the same level of formal funding applications and the same level of investment funds willing to invest in the space?
0: I think, you know, from our experience, and like, I, I think... Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. Obviously, sports is a limited market to some extent, right? Um, And unless your price point is really, really high, you know, venture capital would see a sports-only tool as not as scalable, right? Um, There would need to be proof that you could sell really, really big deals to be big enough um, to be just a sports tool. And we always knew Slate would have application to a broad broad range of businesses. Again, just look at a a company like Canva and how massive they are and how much use case they get. And it's like our value prop, you know, isn't super far off. And we think there's room for other players in that content creation space to be (laughs) billion dollar companies. But I do think, you know, the VCs, it's kind of a funny game because they want to get in early, right? Before things take off but they also want a level of proof before they get in, um, which is kind of, you know, sometimes contradictory. Right. So a a lot of VCs at the, when we didn't have any customers outside of sports would be like, well, you know, how do I know you're not just a sports tool? And it's like, well, you know, we're only a few people and uh, we're selling to getting the most out of kind of the network we have before really trying to extend ourselves super thin. But like, Clearly, the tool has application for other businesses for, you know, content creation and social media, which is a pain point across markets. But until we started gaining that traction ourselves, you know, then more interest comes. Right. And it's kind of that that game of like, OK, we, we need proof, but we still want to get in early enough before there's too much proof and your value is too high. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely seen kind of that interest again. I think for a lot of ECs, like they... They look at kind of the sports market from the outside as kind of its own bubble. Some of them I think are innovative enough to know like sports is kind of a, a leading edge, especially when it comes to like engaging audiences. And that, you know, things that sports teams are doing does lead the way in a lot of areas of marketing and content and social media for other brands. And that application could easily extend to media and entertainment. You know, uh, and the whole brand ecosystem that lives around sports, right? You think one of the NFL's biggest partners is Pepsi. You know, uh, there's a, this whole brand ecosystem around the sports world where we feel like starting in sports really helps us springboard into all of these other places, media, entertainment brands, fashion, fitness, kind of, they're all involved in that, in that world. And it's not such a huge jump to start expanding to these other companies.
1: Very interesting. And, um, thank you for sharing your views. Eric, before, um, before I let you go, um, I just wanted to ask for those listening who may have a use case for slate or who are interested in the product, where should they start? What's the the next step for them?
0: Yeah. Um, so our website is slateteams.com. Uh, that's probably the best place to go. You know, there's resources there, case studies. Um, you could request a demo um, right there from the website and it'll it'll go to us directly and we could set up a call. Uh, but that's probably the best place to start is, is our website, slateteams.com.
1: Eric, thank you very much for your time, for sharing your views on quite a v- wide variety of topics i think
0: yeah thanks george good luck uh, at the event in singapore sorry we couldn't be there next year we'll have to come though.
1: exactly next year indeed well once again thank you very much eric enjoy uh enjoy the rest of your day and uh, i'm sure we'll catch up soon
0: sounds good thanks george